I'm going to start by reading this text, and then we'll um, jump into the lesson. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to, ex to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That's the text we're covering this morning. Now, just to begin, all right, I kind of want to tell a story and we'll jump back into the text, but... Um, I was uh, driving around with my in-laws, all right? I, I was kind of newly married. We were in Gastonia, where my wife and her family are from, and they were kind of driving around telling stories about the area that they lived in, okay? Um, I didn't know Gastonia very well, but we're driving down the road. I'm like, this is a county park, and we've done a lot of camping there, and this is uh, where great-grandma used to live in this area over here. You take this road, and it heads to Lake so-and-so over there, and uh, we passed this kind of run-down kind of biker bar-looking place. We, we see those, you know, out in uh, remote areas sometimes, and there was a bunch of uh, what looked like bikers hanging out outside this building, but the building kind of looked like it was boarded up, and I made some sort of comment of, like, I wonder why they're hanging out at this building, um, and they're not, it's not a biker bar or anything anymore, and my, my father-in-law just simply said, yeah, it's an old bar, and um, they used to have a, a cage with a bear in it, and you could buy the bear a beer, um, and then he he just kind of moved on, and he was like, and over here, you know, we have, <laughs> you know, so-and-so, and my mind was com was completely captivated oh, with this, awesome. I mean, envisioning this kind of dark biker bar and a cage with a beer and guys you know um, and like and, and I just and I, and I and I stopped and I was like hold on can, like can we backtrack like what like did you see this and he's like yeah yeah I was like they had a you know, bear you can't do that anymore <laughs> but uh, they had a, a cage with a bear and you could buy it a beer and like and he kept talking about different stuff but I kept just trying to envision what that would look like and why you would do that and did it get drunk? And that would look, I mean, it just, I just, just it kind of, it was one of those situations where you're just kind of talking, 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 and then something out of the blue happens. You're like, wait a minute, what? Let's go back and talk about that. Um, have you ever been in a situation like that where somebody's just talking about regular stuff and they kind of drop something pretty, pretty big? Um, years ago when I was doing student ministry, um, I got pretty good at like, pulling conversational teeth from middle school boys. They just don't know how to talk um, in conversation, you know. And so um, there's this kid there, 
and I was trying to chit chat with him and summer, you know, school was ending and summer was coming. And um, I was like, what do you, you know, you guys have any plans this summer? Cause every kid has got something going on. And he's like, mm, not really, like nothing. Hmm. Like any, any uh, family trips, vacation, you know, no. Sports camps, teams, no. Um, you looking to, are you a surfer? Are you doing any of that kind of stuff? Yeah. And I, and I actually kind of paused and I was like, really? <laughs> you know, because I knew something. I, I mean, he has, you got to be doing something um, this summer. And he, he kind of thought for a second. He said, well, I am going fishing with my granddad in the Galapagos. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, if I were drinking uh, water, I'd be like, you know, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, you forgot that. Uh, second of all, you're doing that. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're a fisherman, I mean, that's amazing. Like, that's epic. I mean, that's once in a lifetime. Wow, you're doing that. Well, you know, we've been in situations where you kind of talk and talk and talk, and someone lays something kind of big. And like, Whoa, let's go back up to that. Now, I, I, I tell you those stories because I, I see – to me, I think that Paul kind of does that in the text here. He, he's kind of saying some good things, some nice things, some things that we've established in 1 Thessalonians already. Like we've established that the church in Thessalonica uh, started very fast and arguably the most uh, quick success that the Apostle Paul found in any given city. He was, very, very, he was there a very short period of time, uh, but they responded very quickly to the gospel and they, and they grew fast and, the, and they responded uh, well and quickly, but Paul faced opposition right away from uh, Jewish leadership, and he was run out of town. And so he didn't have time to maybe what we would say fully establish them, because it's not like you've got other guys that could take over. Like, this is a brand new gospel. It's not like, why don't you go down to the library and, and uh, check out systematic theology and cover some of the stuff that I didn't have a chance to get to. Okay, so they were vibrant, they were growing, and at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, we see good things, and Paul is giving all credit to God for the success that he's seeing, but they, they still needed instruction, um, some doctrinal instruction, some uh, instruction on righteous living, and one of the themes, the re recurring themes in the book is um, the truth behind the second coming of Christ, which is a pretty important doctrine like if you're going to put your faith and trust in christ as the savior of your soul which has to do with your eternal destination then the second coming of christ has a lot to do with that you know and there was confusion there and they were even concerned about um if i die before christ come back is my soul condemned i mean that it's not true but they just didn't know and so there's some pretty major things that paul is working through here as he's speaking to the Thessalonians, but because Paul had to kind of jet out of Dodge so quickly, there were some people who began to question even his motivations. I'm like, wait a minute, if you should have the freedom to come back, because Paul was on a, a missionary journey, which meant he was he was traveling and didn't have a particular agenda, but he was in Thessalonica, things were going well, people were responding to the gospel, and then he was forced to leave because of oppression and persecution. So some of the people in Thessalonica were like, well, why did you leave us? You kind of left us high and dry. I mean, and they interpreted that as, as not being serious or not being sincere. And so throughout the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, we also see Paul affirming 
his, his actions, affirming his behavior, that he was actually living above reproach and he did things to the glory of God. And so with all of that as a background, uh, this text here is a, is a, a, a very beautiful kind of description of his heart towards the people there, towards those specific relationships that he really cared about, that his soul longed for. So if we go back to this text, we see, but since we were torn away from you, verse 17, brothers, for a short time, all right, saying that Paul desires to come back, we've been torn away in person, but not in heart, meaning my heart is still with you. We hear language like that even today. He says that we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Again, verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. So he's saying, I wanted to see you. I wanted to get back. I love you guys. But Satan hindered us. Verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now this is where I feel like there's a little bit of a change in tone and conversation. Almost a, they have a bear in a cage and they combine with beer kind of thing. Where he says, I desire to see you. I want to be with you. I tried over and over. But then he says something that to me is seemingly contradictory to Paul's own theology. He says, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting? Is it not you, Thessalonians? Is it not you, actual people and humans? You are our glory and joy. And when you read that, I think that it's fair to actually ask the question, wait a minute. I feel like it's fairly clear in Scripture um, that joy and hope and glory and boasting are, are, are pretty much exclusively supposed to be in Christ alone. But yet Paul, the apostle here, is saying, hey, I, I miss you guys. I really wanted to see you for what is my joy and my hope and my glory. It's you, people. It's you, Thessalonians. You are my glory and you are my joy. I almost feel like in, in today's uh, context, it would be something like, my sister lives in South Africa, okay? It's a long, long, long ways away. Um, and if I told my sister, her name is Holly, brother-in-law is Andrew, Holly and Andrew, I miss you guys. I really miss you guys. Like, it's been a long time. She doesn't get home, but once every two to three years. Um, and like, I, just, I just really, I mean, you know, we're blood. Like, I really want to see you. And you know, as we're Skyping, and she could say, yeah, I miss you too, you know, and love you. And I mean, my heart longs to see you again. And if I then said, you know, so I'm going to quit my job and mortgage my house and uh, liquidate my savings so that I can just uproot and come see you. She might be like, what? Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, I understand you, you, you love me and I understand that you miss me, but you're going to do that much? Like, whoa, hold on. When you, when you read things like joy and hope and boasting and glory, it seems like these are major pieces of doctrine that say you find these things in Christ alone. Ephesians 4, 4 and 5, speaking to believers, this is the, by the pen of Paul himself, he says, you are called to one hope, speaking of the hope in Jesus Christ, and it belongs to your call. In Galatians chapter 6, he says, far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, 
Here in 1 Thessalonians, it says that you, Thessalonians, are my, are my crown and boasting. But in Galatians, he says, but far be it for me to boast in anything except Christ alone. We've all sung the song, in Christ alone, my hope is found. In Christ alone, my hope is found. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says that we are to do all things to the glory of God. Um, that he is to receive the glory. And that we are not to focus on receiving the glory from our efforts. And so there seems to be a contradiction in terms. If we keep reading in chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, it, he seems to do the same thing. He starts with this, I really miss you and I want to go to great lengths to see you. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left alone in Athens, which was a big deal. I mean, just to pause here for a tiny rabbit trail, um, this really speaks, I believe, to the level of community and the dire need for us to be around like-minded people and not just to be sitting next to, sitting next to like-minded people, but to be engaged personally and relationally with other believers. Because Paul himself is saying that, hey, this was a huge sacrifice for me to send somebody that I have deep community with away. This is therefore when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Okay, that, that makes sense. He cares. He wants to encourage them. He wants to push them. He wants to check on them. Verse 3, that no one would be moved by these afflictions or persecutions that they were legitimately facing. For you, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. And then here I think it turns into that, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then, whoa, wait, what? When he says, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now it sounds... It sounds a little arrogant to me about he, and when, when Paul says, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain, it almost sounds like he's saying, I mean, I put a lot of work into you guys, and I just want to make sure it wasn't for nothing. Isn't that kind of what it sounds like? He says, um, it almost sounds like he's saying, I wanted to make sure I didn't waste my time. When he wrote Philippians, Paul, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain that I had, or whatever advantage that I had, or whatever accomplishments that I had, I counted it all loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. And so in Philippians, Paul is saying, no matter what comes my way, it doesn't really matter if I find success or failure, if I find imprisonment, death, or I get released, then I can keep on speaking of the God. It doesn't matter because Christ is where I put my hope. Christ is where I boast. I count everything a loss. Yet, he says, I'm sending people to check on you because I'm worried that you, you failed and that my work would have been for nothing. And I think that this uh, is okay to ask, well, why is, why is Paul using this language? Why is Paul speaking this way? Is this a contradiction? And the, the question, as I was studying this text, that I kept asking myself is, how is it that Paul is receiving what I'm going to call God things? 
from another source other than God because he says, you Thessalonians are my hope, you Thessalonians are my joy, you Thessalonians are my crown of boasting, and you Thessalonians are my glory. All things that it seems clear in scripture says that Christ is our hope, Christ is our joy, Christ is our reason for boasting, and we glory in Christ alone. So how is it that Paul is able to receive these God things from another source other than God? Um, Paul, of all people, it seems like, wouldn't be saying these things because we know that people, humans, relationships are fickle. Um, relationships can break. Life is fragile. People fail. People disappoint. Not seemingly a place to build your hope, right? Build your joy and build your crown of boasting or to claim is your glory. John Calvin wrote a commentary on First Thessalonians, and in this text, he made this statement, which um, is amazing. I'm, I'm going to read this twice. He has a little bit of the Old English, even though he wrote in German. It's translated in Old English. Um, he says that we must infer from this text, we must infer from this that Christ's ministers, and this is speaking of Christians doing Christian work, okay, not just pastors, that we must infer from this that Christ's ministers will, on the last day, as they have individually promoted the kingdom, they will take part in the glory and the triumph. Let them, therefore, now learn to rejoice and glory in nothing but the prosperous issue of their labor when they see that the glory of Christ is promoted by their work. The consequence will be that they will be moved by a spirit of affection towards the church. Once again, we must infer from this text that we just read that Christ ministers or Christians acting Christianly will on the last day as they have individually promoted his kingdom, they will take part in the glory and in the triumph. Let them therefore now learn to rejoice in glory in nothing but the prosperous issue of their labors. For when they see that the glory of Christ is promoted by their work, for they see that the glory of Christ is promoted by their work. And the consequence will be that they will be moved by a spirit of affection towards the church. So that there will be something that wells up inside of them that grows their love for the body of Christ. Paul, when he writes um, some of the other epistles, um, uses a couple times a comparison when he compares the gospel and the victory of Jesus Christ with the triumphal procession of a king or general, all right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. All right, once again, let me, let me say that again. Paul, in his epistles, um, a couple different times, makes, uh, makes an analogy or a comparison between the gospel and the triumphal procession of a conquering king or general. Right? For example, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, Jesus Christ, everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance, a fragrance of death. To those who are perishing, and to another, a fragrance of life. That's 2 Corinthians. In Ephesians, he says, 
But grace, this is Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Grace was given to us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, quote, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts and he gave gifts to men. It's a quote from Psalm 68. Now, the analogy here, all right, throughout the course of, of ancient history, whether it's uh, the Roman time or back Old Testament times, uh, there was a tradition for a conquering general or a conquering king to have a parade, all right? And they would parade themselves through Rome or through whatever the capital city would, would be. In the Roman times, if it was a general, there were certain qualifications, like he had to have a, a significant defeat on foreign soil. There had to be a certain number of deaths. There had to be a certain number of captives. Um, like there was this whole category. If you, if you reached that, then it was this, this prized honor to do a triumphal procession through Rome. And you would ride on a golden chariot. And uh, following you would be your soldiers. It, uh, similar to, I mean, I think of a ticker tape parade in a, in a city where the baseball team won. You know, you've got these vehicles going down Main Street and everybody's cheering um, because of the victory. Not only that, though, is they would take the spoils of war and they would give them as gifts. All right, so almost like, you know, Santa Claus throws out candy, you know, I don't know, golden urns, watch your head, <laughs> you know, but, you know, they would give, they would give gifts, but also if you were not the general, uh, but you were part of the military force, you, you participated in the celebration, you participated in the glory, you weren't the one in the golden chariot, but you participated in the joy of what was accomplished, because you weren't just a bystander, saying, wow, look what they have done, but you participated in the effort. And so when we read this comparison and we see all these different things and we see that not only uh, did, the, did the victorious soldiers march, but also the captives would be chained and marched and they would be marching to their death. And oftentimes, both we see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the priests, typically they were pagan priests, would have uh, incense burning. And that incense... To the victors, we all know that, you know, smells trigger. We've all been there before, haven't we? You smell mom's cooking and it takes you back to yesteryear or whatever, grandma's house or something. When I was in college, um, there was a chocolate factory. I don't know where it was, but I was in the middle of, of Chicago and my dorm was on the 17th floor. So it, it blew in from somewhere. But we would have the windows and just be like, oh, and we'd walk over to the window sometimes and just be like, yeah. I mean, it was, it was not just a, a, a wafting chocolate. It was like someone was jamming it in my nose. It was so dense, and I, I still don't know where that factory was, but it was it, – it, but there's still times when um, it'll, 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 it'll trigger memories because of an experience. And so when you have the aroma to the victors, there becomes this association with victory, this association with joy this association with a glorious triumphal procession. But that same smell would not trigger the same thoughts for the captives, right? Because that was the smell of death for them, literally. You know, in Roman times, they would often march them to the Colosseum. And the entertainment would be then getting to watch them fight to the death or fight the wild beasts, whatever it happens to be. And so if they survived and they ever smelled that again, it would be an aroma of death. You see this analogy kind of going back and forth? And so what we see in this, 
in this analogy of a, of a triumphal procession is we see Christ as the victorious king, uh, but the soldiers are those Christ followers, those of us that follow. And when 2 Corinthians says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and get this, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So we, this is not an arrogant statement, but I believe it's very scriptural, that we are the means by which Jesus Christ accomplishes his work on, on earth. That he uses us, for through us he spreads the fragrance of, knowledge of, of the knowledge of him everywhere. And we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That he uses us, that it goes through us, that we are the aroma of Christ. So we see two things that I kind of want to draw our attention to as, as we're working through this text. That we participate in kingdom work. That God uses us to accomplish his purposes. That we participate in kingdom work. When, it, when you have this whole connection between the triumphal procession, it is not just about the king, even though he is the most important, even though he is the leader. There's an analogy here that says, hey, you are involved. You are participating. You're not on the sidelines. You're not cheering for the Yankees that won. But you're, you're part of the team. And you are enjoying the spoils. You're enjoying the glory. You're enjoying the hope. But this is not just speaking about obedience for the Christian. It's, it's really much more glorious. This is speaking about when the, when the, when the Christian obeys. And when, when Calvin said, um, when um, it, it must infer from this that that Christ ministers, all right? So not just those that are obedient, but for those that, that administer the gospel. This is to other people, but just also in everyday life. Um, Calvin says, um, in glory in nothing but the prosperous issue of their labor, when they see that the glory of God is promoted by their work. The glory of God is promoted by their work. So it's not just obedience, but it's acknowledging that your actions of Christ-likeness, your actions of righteousness, which are all actions of obedience, are the means by which God accomplishes his plans on earth. Matthew 25 is a parable that Jesus himself, himself speaks. And he says, um, it's, it's, another, it's, it's another analogy of this whole triumphal entry or the, uh, the triumphal procession of a king. And Jesus says, when the, son, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, you see the, the triumphal procession idea here? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. You see that? So it's the victorious and the, cap and the, and the, and the captives. He separates them. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, and you will inherit the kingdom. All right, you will receive, you will get reward. You will inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Get this, he says, for I was hungry, you gave me food. You've probably heard this part. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick. You visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, 
when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So I used you in the lives of the hungry, the weak, the sick, the imprisoned, the marginalized. I use you, and as you did it for them, I will reward you. That my goals and objectives and my glory are accomplished through you as my soldiers, as my children. We see in Ephesians chapter 3 that God shows himself through the working of the church. He says that the manifold wisdom of God will be known through the church. And this is not this does not mean the manifold wisdom of God is just known because a group of people gather. It's that the manifold wisdom of God will be shown to the world by the way the church behaves, by the way the church acts as it should, by the way the church worships, by the way the church welcomes, by the way the church interacts with the community, that God will show himself through that. Several years ago now, and I don't remember the name of the book. I've tried to look it up. I've said this before. Um, but it was a book on, on work, just going about your day-to-day work. And the premise of the book was that God works most through the natural world. That, that God could, if he so desired, uh, materialize a stack of money for support for missionaries in Turkey. He could, just poof, out of nowhere. Here's the money that it takes. But instead, God uses the natural means of an employer, a pagan employer, running a normal job, an accounting firm or a hospital or a retail store or a restaurant, and pays you money, and the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart, in your mind, that you, you follow the nudge of the Holy Spirit, you obey, you give towards this cause, and people in Turkey are led to Christ. Does that make sense? That God works most to accomplish his purposes through natural means. That he doesn't miraculously materialize stuff that often. But he does use you. Which means it's not all just about if you're involved in a service project. But it, 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 it is how you behave at work. You know, how you go about the business of your day. And that God, that we participate in the kingdom. That we are not bystanders on the side. You know, I, I really do. I, I really do think of um, the analogy of of a, of a baseball team who won the World Series. I think that if you're a big Braves fan and the Braves win the World Series, I mean, you can, you know, you can rejoice over that. But that's kind of that's kind of about it. But if if you're on the team, even a bench warmer. You know, and if you took one swing at the plate, you're getting a ring. You're getting the World Series bonus. You're on the roster of of world champions. You receive the crown. You know, so when Paul says in chapter two, verse nineteen, um, that he received a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ, this crown, as Warren Wiersbe says, is not a crown like a kingly crown, but more of the ancient Greco crown of, of you won the race. And so this is your prize. This is your glory. This is what shows that you were victorious. 
that, you, that, that, that your work was effective and that you can, you can glory in that. Not glory as in your, your body will one day be glorified, but I, I think of, uh, you know, if, I, if you surprise your grandma with a visit and she wasn't expected to see you and she says, glory, <laughs> you know? Can, can, you, can you imagine that kind of a scenario? Like she's rejoicing in something that has come her way. She's found great joy in this thing that has happened that was unexpected. And it's okay for her to take joy in that. So when Paul says that he has a crown of boasting, it's okay and legitimate for him to enjoy the success that he sees as a result of the work of God and that he was used in that. So the first thing is that we participate in kingdom work. We participate in, in God things, if you will. The second thing is that when we participate in kingdom work, we receive God things when we do that. Now, I say God things, and again, I'm referring to when Paul says, you are my joy, you are my hope, you are my crown of boasting, and you are my glory. When we participate in kingdom work, God interacts supernaturally and inserts God things, things that we couldn't get otherwise. That's what a God thing is. You can't have hope outside of the gospel. You can't have joy outside of the gospel. So when we participate in kingdom work, as, as we are called to do as Christ followers, that when we do that, that God inserts those things in our lives that would not otherwise be there. Um, I've shared this before, but it is, it's been a huge impact on my life. But, I mean, years ago, when I was in high school, and I had a youth pastor that I looked up to, he told me something that, I've told a hundred times. He said, "You know, you gotta have, you gotta have spiritual friends." That's just what he said. Um, and I went to a, I went to a Christian school, and he clarified. He says, "I'm not talking about friends that are Christians." He says, "You need to have spiritual friends, meaning friends, and even if they're few, that you have a spiritual connection with, that you can actually talk about eternal things with, that you can go to in your actual time of need, that you can cry with." if you need to, that you could pray with. And he's talking to a teenage boy. Like, we don't like to cry, all right? Um, but that kind of rocked my world because I had uh, several different friends in mind, all of which proclaimed to know Christ, but there were some of them that we didn't talk about eternal things. We didn't, we didn't pray together. And then there was one or two other guys like, that we, we did. And guess who I'm still friends with today? You, know, you see what I'm saying? And he says, you got to have those. You can't just have people that claim the same thing as you, but people who, but who does that? It's God that inserts those God things in those relationships. It's not you saying, I personally, in my human effort, am going to up the ante and therefore generate some deeper level of connection with this Christian person. It's God that does that. So when we participate in kingdom work, it is God who then inserts joy and inserts hope and inserts the crown of boasting. Again, when I was doing uh, student work, I took a group of boys, um, and we did a whole bunch of yard work for this widow in the church. The yard was, was, was one of those completely out of control. Um, lots of weeds, lots of briars. We mowed the grass, um, trimmed all the bushes. And I remember these boys saying, that was so much fun. Uh, but they 
them th their 13-year-old selves, made the connection that they said, um, this isn't fun when I do it at home, you know? So it's, it's God that inserts those things in their service. How else can addressing sin in your life bring you peace? Addressing something that is dirty and dark and that you don't like and that you're embarrassed of, how can that bring you peace? It's the Holy Spirit inserting God things. How else can spending money on eternal things bring you joy? To say, I'm going to take my limited income and take pieces of that and, and give it away to the church to use as they see fit or to these missionaries. How, how can that bring you joy other than the Holy Spirit doing the work? How can, I mean, let's think of church. Most people out there would not say, you know what, I want to put on a collared shirt and get up at 9, 8 something on a weekend morning and come and sit and listen. Who, how, how, how can that nourish your soul other than the Holy Spirit doing that? So when Paul is saying to the Thessalonians that they are his, his hope and his joy, his crown of boasting, his glory, he's saying, hey, I'm participating in kingdom work. Not exclusively me, but we as believers have opportunity to participate in kingdom work. And not only that, but when we do, God inserts things in our lives that would not otherwise be there. So it makes sense to me that when Paul in chapter 3, verse 5, says, I sent him to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain, that he was in fact doing the work of the gospel. He was doing kingdom work. He was receiving gifts, as it says, with the, with the connection of the triumphal entry. And he was rightfully rejoicing in those gifts and the glory that he was receiving. But knowing that the kingdom was at stake in the lives of the Thessalonians, meaning if they had in fact uh, fallen or been crushed by the persecution and the affliction, that Paul was rightfully concerned. And in 2 Corinthians, it, Paul says that I, I was afflicted in my soul based on how, how well you were we're not doing spiritually. It is right for Paul to be concerned because he cares so much for them and that he, was, he had a draw to them in a supernatural way because God had inserted in him things that only God could insert. And so as we look at this text, I think it's important for us to, re, to hear again maybe things that we've heard before, like that we participate in kingdom work. I don't think that's, that's new information for us. But it's something that we need, to, we need to hear again. And not only that, but it's not, just, it's not just rote obedience. It's not just, I need to read my Bible. I need to represent Christ well at the workplace. I need to, you know, I need to initiate with my community group. It's not just that. But by so doing that, God accomplishes eternal purposes. And by so doing that, you receive things that you would not otherwise receive. Things that are, are glorious. Things that make Christian living, Christian living. That it's not that, that our hope in Christ is, is a wonderful, glorious thing because of what Christ has done on the cross, but we are not just a bystander cheering for the Braves. We're part of the winning team. 
that we participated in this and that it is a glorious, wonderful, joyful thing that we can wear that crown of boasting because of what Christ has done. So that God accomplishes his kingdom through us. That in our relationships, in our community groups, in the way we serve, the way you give your money, the way you act, the way you behave in the workplace with integrity, the way you spend your free time, the way you interact with strangers. That these are things that God uses to accomplish his, to accomplish his eternal kingdom, and by so doing, we receive things that only God can give. There's great hope in that. So be encouraged by that in 1 Thessalonians. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you um, that by your design, you didn't just leave us to uh, cheer. But that, Father, we are used by you for your glory and your purposes. And that it's not just something we do because we feel guilty and we ought to. But, Father, you give us great motivation because that's where we find joy, peace, hope, rest, glory, and the crown of boasting. Father, may we look at our week through the lens of this text. In Jesus' name.